In my last podcast, I looked at the first three requests of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. They are all you requests. If we use King James English, they are thou requests. These thou requests redirect our thinking Godward and upward instead of manward and inward. In prayer, our I becomes thy, our me becomes thee. Real prayer begins with God, not us. Real prayer reorients our mindset toward God and His agenda, not us and our agenda. The next three requests in the prayer are all us requests. Jesus left us with a model prayer. This model prayer teaches us that God doesn't need us, we need God. We bring our needs to God and throw ourselves on Him for His solutions. In prayer, we express our dependence on God. We live in a password-protected world. Everything from bank accounts to subscriptions, from websites to social media sites, from ATMs to Wi-Fis, requires passwords or PIN numbers. And they all have to be different. You all know what happens when you can't remember a password. You try a few times and then it locks you out. you got to call the bank and get the lockout released so you can access your information. Other sites require you to reset your password if you can't remember it. I keep a list of passwords and PIN numbers in a file at home so that I can look them up if I need to. I counted 60 different passwords or PIN numbers on my list. Well, we don't need an actual password to get through to God, but prayer is not far from being password protected. When we pray, in Jesus' name, we are saying that the password for answered prayer is Christ, not us. We have no clout, zero, with God apart from Christ. Jesus is the name that unlocks the doors of heaven. We are totally unqualified to receive anything from God except on credit from Jesus Christ. So every time we open our mouths to pray, every time we make a request to God, we are expressing our total and utter dependence on God and God alone. There are three us requests in these verses. Each us request expresses our dependence on God. First, we ask God to provide us with our material needs, verse 11. Provide us with our material needs. Jesus teaches us to pray, Give us this day our daily bread. Literally what Jesus says here is, Our bread for the coming day give us today. The word for bread has a wider meaning than a flour-baked loaf of dough. The meaning is at least as broad as food in general. They understood bread as a metaphor for food and other life needs. By implication, we can extend the concept to our material or physical needs in general. The prayer is likely to be made on the night before, so you are praying for God to provide the next day's needs. 
our bread for the coming day, give us today. The Phillips translation renders the sense of the request quite well. Give us each day the bread we need for that day. Daily bread refers to the food we need to survive. Jesus is talking about our needs, not our wants. Jesus doesn't promise to give us what we want. He instructs us to ask for what we need. And one of the most important lessons in life is to be able to distinguish between our wants and our needs. The Lord's Prayer is a model for us, his disciples, his followers. It's really the disciples' prayer. Jesus illustrates for us how disciples are to pray. We are not to pray these words ritualistically, and it is not even the specific words that are somehow magically important. We are learned from this model prayer the way we should pray and the kinds of things we should pray about. The Lord's Prayer is a way to teach us what God values in prayer. So what does this request teach us about God's values? Well, this is not a prosperity gospel prayer. We are not promised here that if we send $50 to some special address, we will receive a sacred hanky by which we can have health and wealth untold. God does not promise that he will provide our financial security if we ask him in faith. Nowhere does God promise to make us wealthy and successful if we ask him in faith. This is a prayer for our immediate needs, our daily needs to be met, and not our long-term financial security. As one writer put it, Jesus said, give us our bread, not our cake. Most of us are reasonably self-sufficient most of the time. We do not really live day to day. So we have lost this sense of daily dependent prayer that Jesus pictures here. Don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that it's sinful to be prudent in saving some resources for future needs. We must be good stewards. There's nothing wrong with saving and wisely investing the resources God gives to us. But there is something badly wrong if we are trusting those resources rather than God for our daily needs. Jesus teaches us that when we go to bed at night, We should ask God to provide what we need for tomorrow and then not worry about those needs. He is a good God who knows how to take care of his own. After all, we are praying to our Father, our Daddy, and our Daddy loves us and wants what is best for us. So why worry when we can pray? As one person put it, It is almost impossible to overestimate the unimportance of most things. Jesus tells us a few verses later in Matthew 6, 31 to 34, that our Father knows our needs already. He says, so do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Everything we have comes from God. It is God's gift to us. 
James writes in James 1.17, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Paul echoes that theology when he says in 1 Corinthians 4.7, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? When we pray like Jesus says, we are acknowledging that everything is His, and we trust Him to take care of our needs. Life is fragile. We could wake up tomorrow and lose it all, our jobs, our homes, and even our families. Wars, hurricanes, and tornadoes demonstrate how quickly all our resources can be wiped out. The wildfires in California are a sign to a generation of self-sufficient materialists that we can lose it all in the blink of an eye. Now, God is not judging them. Please don't misunderstand me. God is showing us all that we should not trust in our material possessions. Everything we have can disappear in the blink of an eye. The war in Ukraine illustrates the fragility of life for all of us. Overnight, Christians in Ukraine have seen life upended. Churches and seminaries have become refugee centers, feeding and housing people. My friend Ivan, the president of a seminary in Kremenchuk, has transformed that seminary into a home for up to 200 refugees at a time. Pastors Anatoly and Anton, a father and son team, pastored one of the largest congregations in Kiev before the war. Now they transport food and medical supplies to refugees who have lost everything. People don't have anything to eat, and there's no medicine for basic needs. The pastors are working with a pharmaceutical company to transport medicine from the border to the hospital. However, the opportunities for God to work are absolutely astounding. Pastor Ivan in Kremenchuk is passing out Bibles and sharing the gospel with the refugees along with the potatoes and canned goods. Pastors Anatoly and Anton say that non-Christians are volunteering to help in the church refugee centers and they have opportunities to share Christ in unprecedented ways. Anatoly says, we feed people. We help people. It's God doing something special. God said it's not your war, it's my war. We can see God fighting in front of us. What a testimony to the sufficiency of God to meet our daily needs, our daily needs, and use our bad circumstances for his kingdom purposes. My friends, we will one day leave this world exactly as we came into it, with nothing. We will stand before the Lord stripped naked of all our credit cards, mutual fund portfolios, IRAs, and insurance policies. Someone else gets all the stuff we have collected in our lifetimes. Do you know what? We can't even control how our children will spend it. Prayer reminds us of those realities. We will never learn to pray like Jesus teaches us to pray as long as we are self 
sufficient. The essence of prayer is to say, God, thanks for today, and I trust you for tomorrow. That's prayer, as Jesus taught us to pray. Secondly, in verse 12, we ask God to pardon our personal failures. Pardon our personal failures. Jesus taught us to pray, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We come now to this very important and often misunderstood concept of forgiveness. We ask God to forgive us. The word means to cancel a debt or pardon a wrong, to let go of whatever God holds against us. We all want God to let go of what we owe to him, to pardon us. We want God's release from our debt of sin. This is a perfectly reasonable request, and one which all true believers make. We cannot be right with God apart from God's forgiveness. But Jesus does not stop there, of course. He does not allow us the luxury of vertical forgiveness alone. God does not allow us to pray one-way prayers. God and me, that's all there'll be. This is not prayer as Jesus taught us to pray. Jesus adds the comparative as to our request for God's forgiveness. We ask God to forgive us as, as we forgive other people. Vertical forgiveness is re- is connected to horizontal forgiveness, and that is the scary part of this model prayer. Martin Luther called this request in the Lord's Prayer the terrifying petition, the terrifying petition. John Fetterman, rector of Gracie Episcopal Church in Madison, Wisconsin, told the story of an elderly woman who died. Having never married, she requested no male pallbearers in her instructions for her memorial service. She wrote, They wouldn't take me out while I was alive. I don't want them taking me out when I'm dead. Now there's a woman who needed to experience the freeing power of forgiveness. Jesus taught us to ask forgiveness from him as we forgive others. The pronouns are all plural pronouns, we and us. Christianity is not lived in isolation. The vertical dimension is not enough. Christianity is relational, and the horizontal dimension of our relationships affects the vertical dimension in powerful ways. We want God to release us from the debt we owe to him, But we will not experience that release as long as we are unwilling to release others from the debts they owe to us. The Greek tense used for both verbs indicates a general, normal truism that does not stress past time. So it's probably best to translate this, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, not as we have forgiven our debtors. Forgiveness means that God no longer holds our sins against us. He releases us from the debt. The Greek word means something that is owed to someone else. 
in a religious sense, it came to mean sin, because sin incurs a penalty that we owe to God. Just as we ask God to release us from the penalty we owe to him, so we no longer hold each other responsible for the penalties that they owe to us. We release them from their debt. If we still hold a wrong done to us against the one who wronged us, if we still try to make someone pay for what they did to us, if we still hang on to bitterness because of that wrong, then we have not forgiven them. What is more, we will not experience God's forgiveness in our own lives as long as we hold on to the wrongs that others have done to us. Let them go, my friends. Let them go. You say, well, Dave, this sounds like we earn God's forgiveness by our forgiveness. Our forgiveness becomes the cause of God's forgiveness. No, 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 my friends. This is not what Jesus is teaching. We must be very clear. The as, which connects these two clauses, is not a causal connection. This comparison is not a cause and effect comparison. The connection is comparative, meaning in the same way or in the same manner. In the same way or with the same spirit that we grant forgiveness to others, we will experience forgiveness from God. There is an attitude of forgiveness which makes our experience of forgiveness possible. A bitter heart will not experience the freedom of forgiveness. So here's the principle. Our capacity to enjoy forgiveness from God is in direct proportion to our capacity to give forgiveness to others. Forgiveness is contrary to human nature. It must be learned through grace. We do not naturally even accept forgiveness from God. We want to earn it ourselves. In other words, we must learn to enjoy God's forgiveness in our lives, and the way we do that is by granting that same forgiveness to others. Grace received leads to grace bestowed, and grace bestowed leads to grace received. The experience of forgiveness is reciprocal. Now, I'll say much more about forgiveness when we get to Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. But for now, understand this reality. There are four different kinds of forgiveness in the Bible. Two are vertical and two are horizontal. There is judicial and relational forgiveness vertically and horizontally. God judicially forgives you in Christ. Now, that never changes. He no longer holds your sins against you judicially. God lets them go because Jesus paid for those sins. This is one-way judicial forgiveness. But there is a two-way forgiveness which is relational. Our relationship with God can be hindered by sin, and we need God's relational forgiveness to restore us. Vertical relational forgiveness is conditional on our regular confession of sin to God, according to 1 John 1, 9. 
because sin blocks us from enjoying God's two-way forgiveness, even though he has already judicially forgiven us. We operate the same way with others on the horizontal plane. Sometimes we must forgive someone who is unrepentant. We let it go. We release it to God. But this is not two-way forgiveness which produces a restored relationship. Relational forgiveness only comes through repentance. The key point to understand is that if we do not release the horizontal debt of others, it is sin and hinders our vertical relationship with God. We will not experience the relational forgiveness of God as we should. 1 John 1.9 doesn't work as long as we are hanging on to the debt someone else owes to us. 1 John 1.9 doesn't work if you refuse to let go of what your mother or father, sister or brother, husband or wife, friend or co-worker did to you long ago. You will never enjoy the forgiveness of God relationally until you forgive others at least judicially. You will still have the judicial forgiveness from God, but you will not enjoy relational forgiveness with God as long as you hold grudges on earth. People who find it hard to forgive others find it hard to experience God's forgiveness, to enjoy God's forgiveness. The more you learn to forgive others, the more you will enjoy the fellowship of the Father's forgiveness. Jesus teaches us that this is a spiritual principle foundational to prayer. And my plea to you is, don't allow the root of bitterness to creep into your soul and poison your own spiritual life. You will lose touch with God when that happens. Holding grudges poisons the heart. Release the poison and enjoy your relationship with God in prayer. Third, in verse 13, we ask God to protect us from our spiritual enemy. To protect us from our spiritual enemy. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There are four words in this verse that are critical for our understanding of what Jesus teaches us to pray. The first word is lead into. How can we pray that God would not lead us into temptation when we know God cannot do that in the first place? James tells us in James 1, 13 and 14, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone with evil. Well, how do we reconcile these two passages? The word lead into in the Lord's Prayer must be understood as having a permissive force. God does not actively tempt us, but we know that God allows us to be tempted and creates a way out of that temptation. We can see this permissive force clearly in Paul when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.13, 
No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. The second word is the word temptation. This word also means testing, and God does put us to the test in this life. But this raises a second question, because James also says that we should rejoice in trials and testings in James 1. How can we pray to avoid them when we are told to rejoice in them? The best answer, the best way to answer that question, is to say that the testing in view here is a testing that actually results in failure. This is the way the same word is used in Galatians 6.1, where we are to beware that we are not tested in a way that we too will fail. So we are praying that God would not allow us to enter into a testing period, a test that leads to failure. Not just a test, but a test that leads to failure. Remember, prayer is family language. We are talking to our protective father. So we are like the little child who says, Daddy, don't let me fall. Don't let me fall. The third key word is the word deliver. The word can be translated either rescue from, which would mean take us out of the clutches of evil, or it can mean protect us against. I believe this is the force of the verse because of the fourth key word. The word evil should probably be translated evil one. I say this because the particular Greek preposition which is used here and translated from is a preposition used predominantly of persons, not things. So Jesus is not thinking about evil in general, but about an evil person, an evil one. Furthermore, Matthew's first mention of temptation in chapter 4 clearly connects temptation to the devil. So here Jesus is talking about Satan, the devil, or the evil one. So, how is Jesus teaching us to pray here? Let's summarize it. The prayer request means that we are asking God not to allow us into a testing situation which will lead to our failure. We say to God in prayer, keep us safe from the evil one. Don't let us be conquered by him and his power. Protect us against all that Satan can throw against us. Keep us from falling. In other words, we pray to our Heavenly Father, Daddy, don't let me fall. Don't let me fall. What should we pray about? Jesus tells us, Three things. Provide us with our material needs. Pardon us for our personal failures. And, O oh God, protect us from our spiritual enemy. Many years ago, I took a course taught by Kent and Barbara Hughes. 
Kent was at that time pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, a large and influential church in the region. However, back in the 1970s, Kent Hughes pastored a church of 150, which was slowly dying, and he struggled bitterly with his feelings of failure, until one day he came home in total despair. He shared his feelings with his wife, Barbara. He was ready to quit the ministry. He was done. He told her horrible things born out of the frustration of ministry and the unbiblical expectation that success meant attracting more people to church, and he wasn't attracting people to church. That night, Kent told her that most people he knew in the ministry were unhappy. They were miserable. In terms of cold statistics, he was a failure, just as most pastors were failures, he said. He said to Barbara, God has called me to do something he has not given me the gifts to accomplish. Therefore, God is not good. Barbara, what am I going to do? Have you ever felt this way? Barbara said, Kent, I don't know what you are going to do, but for now, hang on to my faith. I have enough faith for both of us. And Kent went to sleep that night. But Barbara could not sleep. She was afraid and felt very much alone. She wanted to read her Bible, but her Bible was in the bedroom where Kent was sleeping. Someone at church had given her a brand new Bible about a year before, which was in the kitchen. It was so new the pages stuck together. And she began to pray, Lord, I've never done this before, but I need a word of encouragement. If you care at all, and I believe you do care, give me a word of encouragement. She opened the Bible, which she had never used before, and it fell open to a page with two verses that were marked in red with a marker. She has no idea where it came from or how the red markings got there. The verses were Psalm 37, 23, and 24. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, though he fall, he will not utterly be cast down, for the Lord is the one who holds his hand. God met her need that night. He protected her and Kent from the evil one in their moment of testing. Through prayer, she saw the answer. Through prayer and through tears, she said, Yes, Kent, hold on to my faith. For tonight, hold on to my faith. She was crying out to her, to her heavenly father. Daddy, don't let us fall. Daddy, don't let us fall. That is how Jesus taught us to pray. Pray that way, and you pray with power. 